Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Timonini. On today's episode, I am welcoming back playwright Michelle Collis Brooks. You might remember that I spoke with her last November about her docu-play War Words, which was performed on both coasts in conjunction with Veterans Day in New York. It was performed on The Intrepid, which is pretty fantastic. However, today I am talking to her about something much different. Her new play, which is getting ready to begin performances this week off-Broadway, Hitler's Tasters. Now, to be fair, I did ask her how to pronounce the name of this show because it actually has an asterisk in the title. So you will hear Michelle and I discuss the proper way to talk about this show and why it is formatted the way that it is in the episode. The play is inspired by true events, but it is a dark comedy in which Michelle's characters explore the way that girls navigate sexuality, friendship, patriotism, and poison during the Third Reich. Michelle discusses the evolution of the show and, and what it has been like to work with this group for multiple years during the pandemic. She also breaks some news, which you might have heard of since this was actually recorded, uh, but we will get into all of that. Hitler's Tasters begins performances on April 14th at Theater Row. I will be seeing it in early May, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing this show in New York. All right, with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with Michelle Collis Brooks. All right, Michelle, welcome back to Broadway Radio. It's wonderful to talk to you again, and this show is extremely different than War Words, which we talked about last year. I, I don't know that I could, although I guess there might be a little bit of, of common ground uh, in terms of the historical nature of them. But first off, I have to ask, how are you pronouncing the name of this show? Because there is an asterisk in the title. So I wanted to make sure that I'm talking about it correctly. Right. Well, hi, Matt. Thank you so much for having me back. And um, yeah, it's uh, we have an asterisk in there, but um, it's we're call, just calling it Hitler's Tasters. That's the that's the truth of it. And that's okay. the name of it. So if you're comfortable with it, we're we're going for the full the full name. Oh, yeah. So is the asterisk there because of maybe some uncomfortability that some people would have? Or is there something maybe a little deeper that we might get into and in the show as to why that piece of punctuation is in the title itself? Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it's it's really um, kind of working on a few different levels, I think. One is, sure, some people are very uncomfortable with the name Hitler. I'm it's not my favorite name either. Um, and so some people just don't like to say it. Some people just don't like to think it uh, or see it. And so we we're sort of taking that into consideration. There's also, quite frankly, on um, you know, on social media, it can get flagged and um, be um, alerted as uh, kind of hate speech, mm -hmm. which is um, what you know. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm happy. <laughs> well, I'm happy that these things are being flagged. Um, I think that yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in this case, it just it obviously does not apply. Um, but also, we think it's it's because there's a lot of conversation these days about what can be said and what can't be said. And so we just wanted to kind of um, tip our hats to that bigger conversation so that it can maybe, you know, open it up within the context of our play. That's I, I think that's really, really interesting. I hadn't even thought about the marketing angle of that, uh, you know, trying to <laughs> talk about the name of the show with that name in there. But on the bigger context of, you know, kind of talking about the things that can and can't be discussed, that's uh, that's a super interesting thing. And I want to get back to some of the talkback stuff that you're doing here in a little bit. But let's talk about the show itself. I think um, a lot of people are familiar with at least the idea of 
people, um, per- perhaps often considered more disposable, um, being testers for powerful people, be those medieval kings and queens, or in this case, you know, tyrants and dictators, um, eating the food to make sure that they haven't been poisoned. And if somebody eats it and doesn't die, then the food's considered safe enough to eat, which is when this press release came about about this this run, Grace, Aki, and I, who do today on Broadway together, we just loved the idea of this show because it's so interesting. But it, this is while there is historical context for this, it sounds like the show is not necessarily about the actual tasting of the food. It's about much more uh, the relationships of the three young women who are actually doing the tasting. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's, um, there's a lot at work. Um, Yes. I mean, we're used to dictators um, having people uh, taste their food for poison. As a matter of fact, an article just came out about Putin and his um, food tasters. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, But for me, when I heard the story. It was a, a real, a woman named Margot Volk um, in Germany in her 90s came out with this story about being one of Hitler's food tasters. And it was extraordinary to me that he had chosen young German women to taste his food, right? And hmm. um, and I thought a number of different things, including like, isn't adolescence hard enough? <laughs> you know, like young yeah. women have so much complication around food and their relationships. And I thought about young women being stuck in a room having to taste, that could potentially die at any meal. And I wondered, you know, what do you do? What do you do in between meals to (laughs) try to forget that um, every meal might be your last? And I thought, since they were young women, I thought, well, I guess young women do, would do um, what any one young woman would do to get through it, which is to um, laugh and gossip and dance and dream and talk about, you know, what they will do when the war is over. And and then there's all their interpersonal relationships. Um, You know, young women can have very complicated relationships. They can be braiding each other's hair in one moment and then attacking each other in the next moment. They have love, they have jealousy. Um, It's just seems like just such a a, a potent um, uh, place to investigate. And um, so I sort of, so it all sort of, the story for me came through the young women and then globalized into a lot of different things. Yeah. And you talk about in the press notes and all that stuff about navigating sexuality, friendship and patriotism, but they do it in a way that looks very familiar. And And I thought what was really interesting is that the noting of the, there being dance associated with what they do. And I thought, oh, yeah, of course, you know, young women and young people in general, um, you know, they're passing time, they dance. But like, this isn't just like jumping around and, and having fun. Like there's a choreographer credited uh, on the show. How important is dance to the telling of this story? I mean, I think dance is important to the telling of any story about young women mm-hmm. in, you know, in general. And um, I think it's very important. It's a release. It's um, an expression of joy. It's an expression of frustration. It's an expression of bonding. We had a marvelous choreographer who who really, um, I didn't con- I didn't conceive of the dance numbers. You know, she she took the script and I think took the dance to um, to an in- incredible level. Um, and I think that's something that the girls in the play need. And 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 one thing that you brought up is that um, or sort of touched on is that there are quite a few anachronisms in the play. 
Um, yeah. And so the dance, the music that you're hearing is not necessarily the music that you would expect in, you know, 1940s Germany. I love that. Maybe a little, uh, a little hip hop stuff. I can, I can see that. I love that. So we'll, uh, we'll see what happens with that. Mm -hmm. But that's, but that's fascinating. I mean, when you're looking at a story that is based in something that's historically true, why do you decide to weave in some of those uh, anachronistic uh, details? How does that help communicate the realities of this, you know, thing that's not necessarily a true story based on these characters, but is a larger tale um, that has some historical truth? Why is that something that is important to use to communicate that to a modern audience? And how do you pick when and how much to do of that so it doesn't just become a gimmick and about that and it still centers on the story that you're telling. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. It can be very tricky. Um, and I went, I, to be honest, I went into it with a little trepidation, but it was very important to me that these girls were not sepia toned people in history. Mm. You know, they were girls. Like I see young women on the street, taking selfies, laughing, crashing into each other. Um, uh, having fun together, fighting with each other. Like, you know, I think for um, the generation of the younger generation right now, World War II is very much in the rearview mirror. Yeah. And um, we're being forced to revisit some of it because of what's happening right now in, in Ukraine. But, um, but it seems like old fashioned, you know, it seems like these are people in history. And I wanted these girls to feel very present and very critical um, because I think that society is always at war with young women for a number of different reasons. And uh, so I didn't want us to just think about them as people in the past. I wanted us to think about protecting our girls now. And obviously the way, the ways that we need to protect young women are very different today than they were from the story that you're being told. I would imagine that not a ton of women, especially in the United States, have to eat food for dictators, you know, to make sure that it's not poisoned. But th there is so much, especially with social media, um, you know, talking about all of the ways that our society and individuals target and exploit and harass young women. That is very much a part of the public consciousness. How are the, or I guess, what are the ties that bind what you're discussing in the story? How do those relate to the things that are going through the lives of perhaps some people that are going to be sitting in the audience and watching this show? Well, I think um, I think that the rights of women are always under attack, right? I mean, I think particularly right now. Um, the, the idea about women having autonomy over their own bodies is in question. Roe yeah. v. Wade is in question right now. Um, there's, you know, voting in general is, is a question right now, which applies to a lot of um, marginalized people. But for um, for young women who, you know, might be saddled with children that they weren't expecting or that are living in poverty, you know, they certainly don't, they can't vote easily. Um, I think that the way that the current, you know, nominee for the Supreme Court is being dragged at the moment is um, she might not fall under the category of a young woman, but she's, she's a woman who's being asked to um, answer all kinds of questions that a man wouldn't ask um, for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. But um, 
but I think women are always find themselves in this position. And I think in particular, and then, yeah, as you said, like with social media, I mean, women, young women are under so much scrutiny. They put themselves under so much scrutiny. There's still such a societal need for them to be beautiful and adorable and quiet and perfect and fashionable and all these things. And, um, you know, the, the, the rate of eating disorders is out of control. The, the rate of teen suicide is out of control. Um, I just, we can't, we can't stop talking about, we can't stop thinking about it. And it's, it's a, it's an old story, you know, you, you know, lifting up young women and then discarding them so easily. It's an old, old story. And it's an old story, but obviously has a lot of modern connotations here. How has this story developed since it originally premiered in 2018? This is, you know, is this the, you know, I mean, you've done it all over the world. So it's not like this is something that you're taking to the stage for the first time. Has it evolved um, throughout the course of time and obviously through the pandemic and through things that we've seen in terms of politics and government, both here and abroad? How has this story ebbed and flowed and changed into the current incarnation folks are going to see uh, at Theater Row here coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, one amazing thing about working, well, there's many amazing things, working with the same team from 2018, we have taken, we know this play has been in, it's been in Chicago, it's been in New York, it's been in Edinburgh, it was in LA for literally two days before COVID closed us down. Um, But yeah, it was a bummer. But um, uh, we, I'm working with this incredibly dynamic and flexible group of women. So whenever certain things would pop up in the news that we felt very strongly about, I would say, hey, what do you guys think about me writing in a little bit about Christine Blasey Ford? Let's just give her a little nod. And they were all game for it. Um, just recently, we uh, just a couple of days ago, we we did a little extra something, something for Putin. <laughs> Um, just to, just to, you know, we're, I don't want to overwhelm the show with gimmicks, but these are things that we all feel very strongly about and that we want to be able to say something about, and this is our outlet. And so, um, this, this crew has been very, very game to make some of those changes and adjustments. And I, I will continue to do that as long as the play is a, you know, is a dynamic piece and, and, and people are game for it because, uh, because the, the culture keeps referring back to it. I mean, even even COVID yeah. uh, was, you know, we we put in something a little bit about a virus, and um, all of a sudden, you know, we were afraid to when COVID first first landed on us. We were afraid to eat. We were afraid of our food. We were afraid of getting food from the outside. Yeah. Right? How to like we wash were, off all of the packages you got right? from the grocery store. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. With the Clorox on the packages, yeah. and then microwaving <laughs> everything, and and you know we didn't know who to trust and who not to trust. So, so um, it's been, it's been um, kind of amazing and, and sometimes heartbreaking how much the culture has continued to refer to this play. You mentioned the fact that throughout this process, you consulted with a group of creative and talented women. That is another thing about this show that it features an all female identifying cast company creative team. Um, I'm sure that was not done by coincidence. I, I feel like that was probably a pretty conscious choice, especially with the subject nature of this show. Obviously, I think anybody listening to this understands how unique that is uh, for any type of theatrical production to have an all-female creative team or an all-female identifying creative team. 
what is the benefit from your perspective on a show like this to being able to work with not only a group uh, that is all female identifying, but this group in particular, beyond being able to add in some of those references and connotations that you just mentioned? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, props really go out to our fearless leader, Sarah Norris, who's our director and who has brought so much imagination to this play. And she um, had always had dreams of of having a, a full uh, female cast and creative team for something. And this seemed like the perfect opportunity. And so when she brought it to me, I, of course, I absolutely loved it. I mean, it's women hanging the lights and women creating the sound, the sound. And, um, and it's, it's been so much fun because I don't know, I think there's just a, a level of, of play and a level of, um, fierceness and a level of, um, experimentation that's taken place because nobody was worried about, I don't know, maybe not looking pretty, not seeming nice, not seeming, um, not acquiescing. Um, there, everybody gave everybody room to experiment and to make mistakes. I've never experienced anything like it. I mean, I've worked with a lot of wonderful men, don't get me wrong, but this was a, this has been a really special rarefied experience. And, um, there's a lot of apologizing. <laughs> We've, we're always <laughs> apologizing to each other, but, um, we all call each other and say, you have to apologize. We don't have to do that. Um, but a lot of women have been trained that way. And so we are in some funny habits that we were able to point out to each other. And hopefully break as well in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, we've definitely been, been trying, but it's been just like, uh, just the whole thing has been a dance, you know, even in its darkest moments, there's been a lot of crying. There's been a lot of weeping about the state of the world. There's been a lot of um, frustration about the state of the world. There's been a lot of frustration about how relevant it feels. Um, And then there are some very dark places that the play goes to and having to manage some of that and having to manage some of our own experiences um, as uh, when, when we were young, <laughs> they're still young when I was a young woman, um, you know, and, um, and it's just felt like a really safe environment to express all of that. Yeah, that's great. Well, you, you have this group of young women at the center of the show. Let's talk about your, your cast real quick. This is a, a show built around, the energy it seems like and the the very specific types of relationships that young women have what has it been like as you start to get into the rehearsal process the performances start here and looking at my calendar it looks like just about three weeks so as you start to get into rehearsals and get into the hot and heavy period uh, of this what is this group bringing to that process that you've been going through with the creative team behind the scenes for a while now that they actually are getting to inhabit this version uh, of the show. Right now, the, the they are all in Silva, North Carolina, where they're all doing the show first. Oh, wow. I for, didn't realize. For a yeah. week. Yeah. Yeah. Silva, North Carolina. They have a big, giant Hitler's Tasters billboard behind the gas <laughs> station. I'm told it's enormous. I've seen a picture of it. It's enormous. Unbelievable. Um Actually, where people in New York have been, some some people have been a little afraid to see the name Hitler. They're not shying away from it in Silva, North Carolina. Okay. And by all, I'm not, so I'm not there by all accounts. Um, uh, rehearsals are going wonderfully. And that, that spirit of um, experimentation and, um, and fun is, is 
is still there. Um, I can tell you that uh, I haven't been with the girls in rehearsal for a while, but I know them pretty well. And they have an amazing energy, the four of them. I mean, Sarah Norris, again, just put together like this incredible team. They all bonded very quickly. They all created, um, when, when they first started, they created a Facebook page where they, they um, their own private Facebook page where they would share pictures of fashion during the Third Reich. And they, right. so they shared inspirations and quotes. And, um, and then I will say when we went to Edinburgh, we were there for a month. We sold out our entire run, our, uh, the entire run for a month. And all those women, there were seven of them because crew two, they all lived in one apartment together with one bathroom and oh, man. There, there were no fights. <laughs> so I, I, it's a really, um, it's a really special, special group of women. And they have done so much. Their enthusiasm has been so much of the driving force of moving this play forward. Because let me tell you, I mean, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, it is no easy thing to move a small play from one place to another, to another, to get the funds, to have the enthusiasm. And they've been a huge driving force in that. And it's, I, I, I recognize the rarity of it. That's wonderful. Well, this show, um, like I said, is coming back to New York, um, running at Theater Row from April 14th through May 7th. This is a show that clearly has um, a lot to say. It has a lot of um, both historical and modern complexities layered in there, which based off of having spoken with you a few times now and knowing your work a bit, like that's not a surprise. But as folks decide to come and see this show, what is it that you they that you are hoping that they take away from the experience of having seen Hitler's tasters? Well, first, I want to tell you, you're going to you're hearing it uh, here first, Matt. We are actually um, I've just found out we are planning a two week extension already. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're getting a great response. Thank you. It's thrilling. Um, but to answer your question, you know, uh, Again, I hope that people will not just take it at face value and be scared of the H word and realize that this is um, to, to know that this is so much more than the name of a dictator. And in my in, in my deepest hippie heart, what I really hope is that that people come away with, of course, being entertained, but also to um, just have a little bit of a a nudge about the dangers of complacency and to remember that we all have to be kind of, you know, invested in the process and invested in our, in our politics and our culture to a degree. Um, I mean, let's not forget that, you know, Hitler was democratically elected and there, there are lots of little things for ways to go wrong. And we are seeing, you know, a real life wannabe dictator in practice right now and so I hope that I hope that the play is a, is, is a reminder to to pay attention and to not look away because it's very easy to other people and to say oh well they're the others and so we don't have to worry about it but I think it's clear that once a dictator starts othering people once he stops othering people because when he runs out of others eventually he turns on his own like yeah like he does in Hitler's tasters. So, so um, 
I don't know. I, I hope that people remember that. And then I also hope that they have um, a few laughs. It's a dark comedy and, and um, it's meant to be entertaining as well. Yeah. I, this is the type of show that just based off of the log line I was interested in and to have you describe it for me, I am, this is the type of show that I hope that we see a lot of moving forward. So I'm very excited to see this show uh, coming up for what is now, it sounds like is going to be at least a five week run. So congratulations on that. But uh, Michelle, thank you so much for talking about Hitler's tasters. I, I hope that the, uh, the excitement and anticipation and the, the eventual word of mouth continues to make this show uh, a success and uh, I'm very much excited to uh, to be able to see it in person here coming up here in a, in a few weeks or a month away from now. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it and I'll look forward to seeing you there. <laughs>